Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News, where today we got a spectacular show, two great guests, two very different topics, but both very, very newsy. And if you haven't uh, heard the breaking news, President Trump just a little bit ago announced a major litigation strategy to start to fight back against tech censorship. All of the censorship, all of the cancel culture occurring in America the president's not taking it anymore. The former president is diving in with a litigation strategy. Just announced it in Bedminster, New Jersey. Important moment, important development. Going to shake the uh, landscape like so many other things that the president has done over the years, our 45th president of the United States. And speaking of the 45th president of the United States, on the show today, we have his former interior secretary, David Bernhardt, is joining us. Secretary Bernhardt had a really significant role in things like reducing regulatory burden on businesses and states. Uh, about $5 billion a year saved in regulatory burden from the changes he made, common sense changes. He also played a big role in one of the most important conservation acts in our lifetime. I'm gonna talk about last decade, last few years, in our lifetime, the Great American Outdoors Act. We're gonna talk about that. Of course, we should talk about the energy independence story and how that uh, change on January 20th has affected our ability, our reliance on foreign oil and energy. We were fully energy independent before it. We're now energy dependent again. And Secretary Bernhardt's going to explain how that happened and how we fix it in the future. And he'll also tell us about one other thing. He had in his role as a deputy secretary, then the secretary at the Interior Department, 70,000 bureaucrats underneath him. He knows a little bit about bureaucratic inertia, the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy, whatever you want to call them. He took his knowledge of what he saw firsthand in the Interior Department, and he described how that, in a recent op-ed, how that could lead to the uh, forced ignorance, the canceling, the censorship of investigation into the potential that the Wuhan lab was the source the leak source of COVID-19. Really fascinating op-ed. We're going to talk to them about that. And then we've got all that covered. That's a lot, right? Guess what? I'm taking you to California. There's a reason why we're going to talk to you about a law that a lot of you don't know was passed, has been enacted in the last few months. Yes, California, Gavin Newsom, you roll your eyes, but this is real and it has real victims, real consequences. Biological males may now and are being transferred to female prisons 
just by declaring gender neutrality or transgender status. There already have been attacks, already have been threats, have already been sexualization inside the female prison by these biological males. We have a leader in the fight against that policy on the show in just a few minutes. Um, What a big show, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of common sense discussion about all the craziness in the world today. You don't want to miss it. So we're going to do a quick commercial break like we always do when we come back. First up, former Interior Secretary David Burnout here to talk about all things energy, conservation, and a little bit of uh, COVID-19. You're going to want to catch all of that right after the commercial break. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, the former secretary of the Department of Interior and the current chairman of the Center for American Freedom at AFPI. We've been talking a lot about them. They're doing some amazing stuff all around the world to create to keep the top Trump doctrine alive and growing and expanding. And so Secretary Bernhardt, for the first time, David Bernhardt joins us. Uh, Secretary, good to have you here. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here today in a week that began with the celebration of our nation's independence. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. Well, it's an honor and you're doing such important stuff. And I want to take everybody to an issue that I keep talking about. I'm so fascinated about how quickly we managed to go from being an energy independent country to an energy dependent country and high gas prices again, all in a matter of a few months under President Joe Biden. Tell us a little bit about one is your role at Interior, how we got to the point of energy independence and then how quickly it got reversed. Well, you know, I, I had the incredible opportunity to uh, serve the American public at the Department of the Interior, which manages about one in every five acres of land across the United That's amazing. States. amazing. And as a result of that, a lot of activities like energy development take place on some of those lands. And, you know, I was fortunate. I worked for a president who had a fundamental belief um, in the goodness, the wisdom, and the common sense of the American people, but also a true belief in um, American exceptionalism and Americans' ability to utilize uh, technology. And because of that, you know, if you look back at time, what you really see is in the early 2000s, uh, the energy revolution with shale began. Um, and through 2009, it, it really took place primarily on private land. It did, yeah. And the president the president recognized that value and 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 made it one of his policy priorities to um you know ensure that that res- that revolution continued on appropriate federal lands and in doing that you know it enriched uh com- local communities who um are able to receive a portion of the royalties that come from those um uh efforts it obviously put jobs in the hands of a lot of people. I grew up in Western Colorado, and um, it's tremendously important to communities in the West to have these economic opportunities. And um, beyond that, 
as a foreign policy uh, initiative to no longer be uh, dependent on foreign sources of um, uh, energy um, completely changed the paradigm um, in foreign policy for the president. And it was a, it, it freed him in, in, in many ways in terms of the policies um, that I believe were, were meaningful in the Middle East and other places. And to, to leap backwards, um, you know, in, in six months is, is absolutely astounding. And what's more astounding to me is it's to leap backwards um, for really talking points over substance. Because when you look at the world and you say, okay, let's not um, take the best regulations in in the world, which happen to be here in America, and apply them to the development of this energy. And let's not um, enjoy the economic opportunities that come from that. That doesn't mean that other places in the world won't develop their energy sources. And so what we see is uh, Russia um, begins a very robust Arctic uh, energy development program. Um, You know, the the fuel sources will come um, because at this moment in time and for the foreseeable future, the world economy is highly dependent on ensuring that there's a... um, Really reliable source of um, of energy, and 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 most of of the world is driven through uh, fossil uh, energy production, and we see that today. The price of gas. I don't know if you've filled up lately, but it's it's a little staggering, right? You look at (laughs) it ain't pleasant, yeah. And 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 that really is a tax on on everyone in America, all so that a segment of American can feel very good that they're doing something that will frustrate um, the development of these energy sources. And, you know, um, and that, you know, that makes some people feel good, but it puts a real uh, impact on, on others. And what it really does from where I'm from in the West is it, it takes away an economic opportunity. And what I find astounding about these policies is they have nothing to replace that economic opportunity with. It's just taken on the chin. Exactly. And when we, when we develop a project um, that affects the environment, we go through a very um, thoughtful analysis, and sometimes it takes decades, near, which is way too long. But it ta- we go through this process of analysis to ensure that the decision we're going to make is um, responsible from an environmental perspective. You know what we don't do? Exactly. We don't do that same process before we decide not to do something. Um, and you would think that you would think that, um, if you're going to get rid of jobs in Western Colorado, you should have a solution. I mean, my, my view is like, if you want to do these policies, great, but, but let's have an analysis and you better have a substitute instead of walk out and say, well, we're going to stop the job now and we'll hope that something comes up later because there isn't necessarily something coming later. Yeah. You know, the, the Congress has created PAYGO, and exactly. they do creative things to avoid it. But, you know, the right. principle is that we shouldn't fund something unless we have a way for paying for it. Sure. And it seems to me, and, and maybe this is something I want to ask you about, is it, has the time come that for every regulatory burden, there ought to be a job estimates lost if we're going to take action and that become part of the regulatory process? Absolutely. You know, President Trump um, really... Um, beyond um, uh, 
his his work on um, the the tax package that was really fundamentally right. uh, creating greater competitiveness for America. Um, the work that he led and spearheaded and allowed us to do on the deregulatory side was was so necessary and and must continue. We have dozens, literally dozens of um, well, I mean, truthfully, hundreds of regulations that were written in the 1970s that are completely um, wrong for today. And they just um, continue uh, to impose burdens. And, you know, um, they're, they're absolutely, before, before the government takes an action, it really should ask itself, um, what harm is going to become, what is, harm is going to come? Right. And then I believe fundamentally an accountable person should make the decision. And when I mean when I say accountable, somebody that has to report to the president or somebody that has to report to Congress. We have created this world um, with the modern bureaucratic state where um, well-meaning employees um, have developed massive programs that within them are both legislative, executive, and even quasi-judiciary yep. activities. And there is virtually no accountability. Um, yeah, at, at the agency that I uh, led, the Department of the Interior, there's 70,000 employees, and there was about 70 political appointees appointed by the president. Wow. And now, so that's one um, for every thousand employees. That that's a precisely great way <laughs> to look at it, right? Wow. And so, um, so each of those employees cares deeply about whatever program that they're working on. And um, and they believe they believe that that program is one of the most important things um, America could do because obviously they've invested their life in it. Yep. But that um, that passion for that um, that particular program often leads, in my opinion, to the placement of lenses on your vision. Yep. That are not informed by. Um, the um, overall meaning of a program and its potential impacts. And we had that in Interior. You know, we had very well-meaning programs that um, were designed to basically um, help with international wildlife. And so somebody came up with the idea that we'd give grants to um, non-governmental actors who would then go out and provide firearms and um, things to protect wildlife in Africa. Well, that sounds sort of good yep. until you recognize that, that people with guns can also do bad things. They can. And it turned out that we were giving guns to people. Who were uh, bad guys, th- huh? These or agencies were giving guns. These entities were giving guns to people that were likely doing very, very bad things. And, and we said, look, you can't do that. And the reality is so much money, so much money goes through our government system to these NGOs and then overseas, and virtually none of it, in all honesty, has any real accountability. Once I let a dollar out of this country, my ability to control, manage, and oversee that dollar changed dramatically. We don't have people out there, right? You know, if, if I if I if I give money, not if I give money, but if the Ameri- if the American taxpayer gives money to Yellowstone National Park. And it's, a, and it's applied in the national park. You know what happens? Somebody can drive up to the national park and deal with the problem. 
but but when we send these dollars overseas we basically let go of them and you know when we send them through these surrogates we're really letting go of them and the bottom line is that ultimately when things go bad no one is accountable and that that i think really needs to change we need uh, congress to reassess you know how we fund these how we fund um, the massive things that we fund, and do we actually ask before we send the funding, what harm could come from this? Yeah. Because every program begins with the presumption that we're going to do good. But if, if it turns out that it is true, that funding left um, NIH, went to um, uh, certain entities, and then flowed to the Wuhan lab, and then the possibility that that lab, whether deliberately or accidentally, um, is the origin of the virus, that's unbelievable. It is. Self-created crisis. Exactly. And you know, um, because of the resistance that you uh, received in raising the possibility of an issue like that, you know that the the tide is tilted so far against, um, against supporting that notion. And here's why. Obviously, China doesn't want uh, to be seen as as letting something like that happen. No one would, right? right so right. China has a big interest. Any lab that does business with China They've has got a really big interest yeah. of not losing their um, relationship with China. Every government employee that funded a program, the last thing they want to see is that they did something that will likely damage that program. So they have a real interest in ensuring that, and and even some of the members of Congress that funded these programs, they don't want to see this. So at the end of the day, what I say to the American people is, look, you have common sense. Look at people's bias honestly and openly and make a decision yourself. And at the end of the day, what we need is we need our policymakers to be accountable for the expenditure of money in ways that are completely risky without beforehand thoughtfully calculating and considering the risk and the cost. And if the cost is high and you can't control it, just don't do it. Yeah. That's what we all common sense. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, sometimes you just have to say, and we, we had, um, bureaucrats that, that wanted it yep. uh, funded. We had members of Congress, but sometimes you have to say, look, until you come to me with a solution that doesn't involve risk that I'm putting money in the hands of people that are going to buy guns that are going to do bad things for people, we're not doing it. It's just that simple. It's... Stand up. And, and America, I believe, if people will stand up, America will support that unequivocally. It's, uh, it is remarkable. As I was listening to you, I was thinking back 30 years ago when I first came to Washington, there was this wily old, very Democrat, very liberal senator by the name of Bill Proxmire. He mm-hmm. used to give out a thing called the uh, Golden Fleece Award that would highlight every week an example of just crazy, wasteful spending. And I went to interview him right after his retirement. He said to sing it as I was listening to it, it just popped back into my head. The world changes, but government bureaucrats never want to. And uh, (laughs) it has always stuck in the back of my head 30 years later because you get these entrenched bureaucracies. And you 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 wrote an amazing op-ed recently that explained just what you just what you just said, literally how uh, the Wuhan lab leak theory could get suffocated because there's just so many invested constituencies that don't want to let the truth out. And so we go a year without knowing the truth. And um, it, yeah. it's unbelievable. And, and not only that, 
what they didn't disclose is that they might have a conflict, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, can you think of like any other place on the planet or certainly in American society where if you might be culpable, you continue the investigation? Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. I mean, you just recuse yourself You're and move to, on, right? Yeah, it, and, and, and only here, um, you know, when you look at these, this factual situation, and as a matter of fact, your, your program a few days ago highlighted a recent letter on the Lancelet um, from the folks that wrote the one it's in insane, 2020. Right? Yeah. And, and you know what they begin their letter with? I mean, I found this unbelievable. Their first pair, their first real thrust is we reaffirm our solidarity with China. <laughs> yes. I mean, that Good is that is like their lead point. Let's put their and, bias right on the front of the letter. Right. right and, <laughs> and right. That's like we yeah. want to make sure our funders are happy. Yep. We want to ensure that we're fun, uh, we're, oh, we're working with our collaborators. And then they move on. It's like it's like um, I don't know. It's Orwellian. And it you is. just read it and you just sit there and go, of course, of course. And, and that at the end of the day, we have to recognize that. Um, Congress's role in these things now, uh, as government has become complicated, Congress is an inch thick and a mile, mile wide, wide. Yep. And, and they must step up to the plate and do more and, um, and oversee this. One of the best hearings, I'm a, I'm a hearing junkie, uh -huh. one of the best hearings <laughs> that I've seen in decades was last week. Um, with the GOP looking at this COVID issue. And oh, if yeah. you watched the two scientists there, and I tell all of your viewers, go to YouTube and just watch those two scientists in this hearing, and it's powerful testimony. But I thought, how ironic, like if this had happened any other time when we weren't deep, so, so politicized, what you would have had is a massive august hearing yep. with, um, you know, it would have looked like the um, Iran-Contra hearings and you would have had these, these scientists testifying and maybe somebody contrary to them testifying too. But that doesn't happen now because we have become um, so politicized that, that the leading policymakers would simply prefer to follow their narrative instead of figure out the facts yeah. and we as americans have party to ahead of country yeah that cannot happen oh it's it's just terrible mr Seger, you had a lot of success and we talked a little bit about your anti-regulatory agenda of just getting rid of regulations or burdens in regulations that unnecessary punish people without really bringing benefit i know you i think the estimates i've seen during your tenure were about five billion dollars of unnecessary burden were lifted off of that's right businesses and, and individuals there's another thing that you were a champion of that doesn't get a lot of discussion of you. The media talks all day that Republicans and Trump were uh, dirty energy guys and they go on and on. But actually one of the most significant conservation laws ever passed in the country occurred on your watch. You were a big champion of it. So was obviously President uh, Trump. But the, the Great American Outdoors Act, talk a little bit about how how ground shaking that that legislation was and so, what it does to protect America's conservation. It, it, it's unbelievable. So the president the president, um, you know, when he ran in 2016 uh, as a candidate, Trump, he laid out an incredible vision for American people that had energy independence on one hand, but also a complete commitment to conservation stewardship on the other. Yeah. And we, um, we, we began um, an effort to expand access of the public to the public lands and opened millions of acres of land uh, to public access and incentivize that. 
um, so that people could get out, recreate, and, and, and utilize the land and love the land. Because I believe the closer we are to nature, um, the more harmonious our lives are, yeah. to be completely honest. Also, the more respectful but, we are of it. Yeah. But what the president did, and only someone uh, like President Trump could do this, and it was so significant. For decades, there had been arguments that, we, that um, the Congress should use energy revenues um, to fund additional uh, land conservation and recreational activities. Um, and, and basically, that would be a way of taking energy revenue on one hand right. um, and utilizing it to provide good things for the American people in terms of additional open space in, in areas that needed open space, sure. uh, baseball diamonds and recreational um, activity fields um, in, in other places, bike, bike trails. And the president knew about this. He also knew that for decades... Um, the counter argument to that had been, well, let's lose, let's use money to invest more in the infrastructure of our great national parks that really are the gems of America. And, you know, um, we need, we need to uh, do more um, to take care of these facilities that ultimately are loved to death. I mean, they, yep. they just get so much use and, they are. and, and not a big investment. So those two arguments had been made um, but usually in um, opposition to each other, like let's do this versus that. This pre President Trump um, uh, understood this idea and was presented it and said, well, let's do both. Let's do both. And by doing that, he, um, and, and there were some, to be candid, there's some in his party that thought it was uh, not the right thing to do. But he, he stepped forward courageously, said, we should do this. We should do both. And I assure you that over time, that act, which invests over $10 billion in our national parks and also $900 million a year, every year going forward in terms of recreational activity, over time, that single act will become the most significant conservation legislation in our nation's history. It was that big a deal, and it's it, the funding that came with it is so yeah, significant. It's transformative. And and you know, if it had been um, any other president, um, you know, there would be um, monument established for that. He doesn't get the credit um, that he should, but over time he will. Lamar Alexander, senator from Tennessee, yeah. retired last last year. Last year. Yeah. Uh, when we did the signing, the bill signing, I gave a speech where. Lamar Alexander had actually had a proposal to permanently fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund that he had given President Reagan in the 1980s. Okay, so that's, <laughs> that's how, how long, long they've been working on. And yeah. and 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 only only President Trump uh, could have got it done. And it's it's monumental. It was completely bipartisan. What people don't realize that even in this very partisan time, if you go back and look at Trump's legislative victories. What you will see is that they were incredibly, incredibly bipartisan. The COVID legislation, the Great American Outdoors Act, the list can go on and yeah. on and on. And, um, and, you know, the other side does not want to highlight that. Let's be honest. Yeah, no, it's such, such an important uh, legacy. And I think uh, as time passes, that legacy becomes more clear. It's, often you don't know a president's legacy until 20 years later. And I think all these things that we're talking about that didn't get the media's attention at the time, though they deserved it, 
are going to seep into the consciousness as people see the benefit and values and, of it. And also the alternative, which the Biden administration has so quickly given well, us. Well, that, that's right. The other Contrast. thing is groups, the groups like the American First Policy Institute. Yeah, so and important. It is, you know, moving forward with the ideas. And I, I think that's something we all can play a part in is, is, is taking the ideas and moving them forward, uh, handing them to the next generation of, of thought leaders and, and moving forward with them. Because at the end, American First is such a simple concept. Let's just ask a basic question. Is this in, is this in the best interest of the American people or not? And if the answer is no, Let's not do it. Let's not do it. I mean, that what doesn't a novel sound too concept. radical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, I, as we come to a close here, how do people stay in touch with all the great work you're doing at the Center for American Freedom? Such an important um, new body that's really weighing in on policy issues. How do they stay connected to what you're doing? Mr. I, I would say reach out to the uh, um, American First Policy Institute yep. webpage. Read read our, our, our writings and mailings, and, and we'll keep trying to educate the American public. Uh, sounds like a great opportunity, and I thank you for educating us today on so many great topics, uh, sir. It's an honor to have you on the show, and I'm certain we're going to need you back. Thanks a lot, John. All right, Mr. Sure. Have a good day. You bet. Bye-bye. All right, folks. When we come back, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got an amazing story out of California. You do not want to miss this right after the commercial break. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest on a very important issue. I think a lot of people don't know about this, and we're trying to educate them about this. We had a great story by my colleague, uh, Greg Piper, last week, where he looked at uh, the move by California to take biological males who identify as transgender women and put them into female prisons in California. A lot of ser- security and safety concerns. And one of the persons that are, are, are leading the fight against this, trying to protect women in prison, is Lauren Adams, the legal director of the Women's Liberation Front. And uh, she joins us today. Lauren, great to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a pretty amazing issue, and I don't think a lot of people even know that California has made this uh, move. But in the last year, they, they passed a law, right, that allowed people to, uh, to go and to choose the prisons by which they identify their gender. So if you're a biological male and, and you identify as a woman, you could ask to be transferred to a, um, a female prison. What, how many um, prisoners have tried to take advantage of that law already? Well, first of all, uh, it's actually worse than what you just said, because they don't actually have to identify as women. Um, they, the law says that if they are transgender or non, if they identify as transgender or non-binary. So ah. all they have to do is not identify as a man. So we're aware of some who have applied and even transferred so far who actually don't identify as women. They identify as non-binary or gender fluid or... right. Any number of other things. So we're in a situation, um, we are aware of 
almost 300 applications. Uh, all of almost all of them are from men's prisons to women's prisons. They uh, we know of at least 26 that have transferred. We suspect it's more. It's hard to say. The numbers that they're putting out are not accurate because they'll say, for example, they say there's uh, 15 right now in Central California Women's Facility, but we know of at least 18. So who knows, right? Um, the scope Sorry. of that problem is very serious, though. Yeah, listen, it only And takes... they haven't denied any yet. Yeah. No, you know, what's really interesting is some of the statistics just about uh, the circumstances in prison. So walk me through some of these statistics, because I think it helps people understand the risk factor that you're trying to uh, to address. Sure. So 80% of female uh, inmates have had some form of sexual abuse in their past. Is that correct? I, yeah, I actually think it's a, a 86%. I think wow. it's a, the more, it, it's a huge, huge number. There's almost no other demographic factor that's more associated with being an incarcerated woman than to be um, a, a victim of abuse in your life, yeah. especially as a child. Yeah, it, it, the correlate. You know, when I was very young, I worked as a sheriff's deputy, putting myself through school, and I, I worked the courthouse. And the prisoners would come in and out, and you would see these women that would come in, and they had these stories, and you knew that their life had been so rough, and sexual abuse was a big part of that. And um, you know, really opened my eyes. I was very young then; I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and uh, you know, just learning life. And uh, you look back now, and that that trend line one, it's it's one of the you know one of the big parts of victimization that doesn't get talked about but the you know being sexually assaulted being uh, part of abuse often leads to a life of life of crime or because you're in a life of crime you're, you're exposed to people who abuse you either way um the correlations are so much larger than people know so you have that factor so you have a lot of vast majority super majority of prisoners uh have had some sexual abuse trauma already in their lives and then you take in this uh, pool of uh, biological male prisoners who either identify as female or gender neutral or any of the categories that fall into this law, how many of them are prior sex offenders? So the numbers that we have um, reported in 2009 was 20% were sex offenders and 50% had committed crimes against persons. We are concerned based on what we know about the criminal histories of the men who have already transferred that that number is low and i think it is worth noting that that research was undertaken at a time when they were not transferring men to the women's prison yeah, great point so now there's a much larger incentive to check the box as it, yeah. as it were. so you have a vulnerable population and then you have a percentage of the potential population moving in that has a predatory past right that's sort of the perfect storm that you're worried about is that correct Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. It is pretty remarkable. Um, you started this campaign a few months ago. What has been the reaction from California state officials? Uh, silence. Silence, huh? <laughs> Just don't want to deal we with it. We haven't heard. Oh, absolutely. And we, we've heard more and more from people on the ground, right? Uh, advocates, uh, all of the organizations who usually work on prisoners' rights are not speaking out on this. They either want to stay neutral or they're in favor of the law. And it's no one's listening to them. Yeah. And we we tag Governor Newsom and Scott Weiner, who's the architect right. of the bill, State in almost everything yeah. we post. Uh, we you know we just posted a a clip of we recorded a phone call from an inmate at her request. She wanted to be public. 
and we tagged them in it and I emailed it to them and you know they just don't get back to us and they don't want to hear from the women in there they'd rather just forget them well in the in the category of silence can become complicity um this seems to be one area where that really needs to be watched closely so I want to get into more of what it is that you sure. and the Women's Liberation Front are doing. But I want you to, just because a lot of people probably haven't heard of your group, tell us what uh, your nonprofit does. What, what's your mission? So we are a radical feminist nonprofit. And that means that we focus on areas that mainstream feminist groups have basically abandoned that are very important. So we focus on male violence and prison issues fit in with that, as well as domestic violence shelters and gender abolition. So we believe only that people have a sex, right? And that gender is a a thing that's imposed upon us. So there's male and female, but then the idea that boys have to play with trucks and girls have to wear dresses, that's more gender. So the idea of gender identity and identifying with a sex is basically regressive and an embrace of gender roles in a way that we think is harmful to women. We also oppose commercial um, sexual and reproductive exploitation. So surrogacy, prostitution, pornography, and uh, the very same forces that are typically supporting these gender identity policies are usually also trying to decriminalize uh, sex trafficking and all of these other things. So it's kind of this whole ideological Easter basket of badness. Yeah, well, there's a lot of badness in, in the world today, and you, you clearly are trying to fight it. The uh, I look at your background, you, you have some, uh, you had some back in a uh, project in some tech area, but uh, you also spent some time in a courthouse, right, as an intern looking at the system, watching criminals and victims come through the system. How do, how do you get involved in this issue? What spurred you to say, you know what, I want to take a stand. Uh, you have a connection to Wisconsin, right? But you're, you're taking a stand on California. What, what was the thing that got you so impassioned about intervening on this matter? Well, for me personally, on the getting involved in this, I've only been aware of the scope of this issue for about a year and jumped right in to try and get involved um, and ended up getting this job first just as a uh, counsel to Women's Liberation Front and then was asked to be legal director. And so for me, it was just realizing that um, I had questions about some of these things, but the people who are in the know are hostile to questions. So I would say, well, wait, what about, for example, what about male prisoners who are sex offenders? Surely we don't. And if they still have uh, their male parts, like, and right. oh, don't say that. You can't say that. So realize, like, I'm a lawyer, so I don't want to. I'm open to debate. You know, I don't right. want to. Sure. Like, getting shut down tells me you can't defend your position. But in terms of California, we were approached by. We were aware of this bill and opposed it, but we were approached uh, earlier this year by a group called Woman to Woman, and they do direct reentry services in California. They are uh, composed of currently and formerly incarcerated women. One of their board members is actually still inside at CCWF. Um, And so uh, they help women prepare for the parole board. They help them transition out, find them resources. And they found themselves opposing this bill and being very surprised that they were alone in that, you know, amongst all other prison advocacy groups. And they couldn't couldn't get anyone to listen to them. And so they reached out to an ally of ours who connected them with us. And immediately we 
jumped on the opportunity to be able to try and do something. There's a really interesting dynamic here at work. And of course, uh, obviously you, you, if you, you've stated, you know, you're, you support transgender rights. You're not being trying to be discriminatory here. And yet, uh, and what you're really trying to do is protect the physical security of, of women in prison, particularly a vulnerable women's population with, you know, a large history of potential abuse in their past. Um, and the, the normal advocates, the normal people who would step up at the plate and say, we're here to defend women. They've been silent. How are you going to change it? What is the dynamic? Is there anything you can do? Are there odd bedfellows where you can, uh, coalitions that you're going to build that maybe are not the traditional coalition to go uh, forward on this? I mean, how do you overcome the the silence and inertia that, that you've encountered yeah. early on? <laughs> well, definitely non-traditional is the word, right, in terms of coalitions. Yeah. Um, we do work with a lot of conservative groups on various issues, and on this we um, I mean, there's a lot of people people on our sort of, I'd say to say, side, because it's not that. We're nonpartisan, but right. it won't surprise you to learn that many of our supporters are very left-leaning. And, um, sure. <laughs> and yeah, so it, it's, it's tough because we do get in the middle where people are like, oh, we don't want you to work with conservatives or things like that. And we're just like, you know, whoever, who, you know, you fight with the army that came with you, yeah, right? Like, that's right. You don't. And we have been working with dedicated men and women on both sides on this. And we definitely are building in terms of elected officials. It, there's definitely silence from the Democrats. They do not want to even yeah, talk about it's it. It's just too uncomfortable to delve into this. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a, and yet there's, you know, there's a lot of common sense in what you're proposing. So let's get to some of the solutions you have. Cause you've, sure. you've thought through a lot of this. So uh, the first option is to just stop this, right? And uh, that's, I think, option number one for you guys. What are options two and three? Because I think you have some interesting other options. Well, yeah. So so just to start with, though, I I mean, violence in men's prison is a huge problem. It is. I, everyone, everyone knows that. Yep. And some men are more vulnerable than others. And men who do identify as transgender are among the vulnerable groups. Right. And uh, gay, gay and bisexual men is actually... Um, just as vulnerable. They are the victims in almost the same proportion of reported rapes and there's no solution for them. Right? right. Like, so we're just, so I think one of the things is that people who have great empathy and are worried about this problem and this is the best solution they can come up with. Right. Some of them. And then there's the people who are doing it based on ideology. Right. Humans can change their it's a political that. cause. But there's a lot of people in the middle who are just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. And it just this is a solution. So I think one of the things is to change the conditions in the men's prison. And we have to force them to grapple with the things that are going on and provide real solutions. And the Prison Rape Elimination Act actually puts a number of barriers in between um, prison administrators and being able to be flexible in how they're keeping their inmates safe. For example, they're not allowed to have separate wings or units. They are actually, it's considered stigmatizing. It's considered discriminatory in the sense that if you put them aside, they, you can't deliver the same programming as right. you could. And right, right. It's sort of punishing the victim, like removing them as opposed to removing. So that needs to change. We need to restore some local flexibility there. It's it's absolutely critical. Prison Prison administrators don't want to have this chaos there. So we need to give them those tools back. And we need to just say no. We need to say you have to keep them safe. The solution to having victims in the men's prison is not to change them to female victims. It's not to, 
And many of these men who are transferring have been victimized in the men's prison. And what we're seeing from that is that they're coming and we were talking about trauma and how trauma makes people act out criminally. One of the first assaults we heard of was a man who was victimized in the men's prison. It's documented. He sued the state over it and has transferred and within weeks had um, attacked his female uh, cellmate. And then they took him away, put him in prison jail, right, administrative segregation for a couple weeks, and then dumped him on a different yard. So there are already instances of biological male prisoners being transferred to female prisons and then committing assault, at least one, right? Absolutely. Oh, there's many. Wow. So the the fear is already realized in the sense that there are real cases of this already happening. There are. And I think it, you know, it goes beyond that, though, too, because um, I've heard over and over again from these women, they, they say, I don't mind real trans women. And to them, what that means is, like, from our perspective, right, humans can't change sex, and it's always going to come back to that. But what they mean is that if you come in there and your goal is to integrate and to be a part of the community and you're not a danger, they will accept you. Right. But that's not what's happening. Even the, even the, the men who maybe sincerely identify as women, who knows what that, whatever that means, right? Right, right. Um, they're coming in there. They're acting like men. <laughs> they're yeah. acting what you would expect. They come and they want to be bossing people around. It, it's, an, it's incredible. When I read the incident report from this assault I just mentioned, literally what happened was she had just cleaned the floor and he was walking on it and she asked him not to walk on it and he got mad. And yeah. it was like, this is, it's domestic violence, right? Like exactly if that happens in a, yeah, it And so I couldn't believe it. And she said, and she told me, she said, he said, I'm tired of all these women in this, prison complaining about everything and i just it's like i, I worked in domestic violence you know i worked with right victims I saw that in that path, yeah yeah and i was like i have heard this story before of course and so this is this is a man who maybe sincerely identifies as a woman i don't know but he's not a safe person to have in there and that we're just hearing that story over and over and then there's just insane things like convicted rapists and murderers and stuff too yeah and these women are terrified and they're the men, they test the boundaries and they're getting aggressive and they say, we're going to come and take over. My, my brothers are coming and there's nothing you can do about it. And they're terrified. Like there's women with PTSD who have had it for years. Yeah, right. And it's now getting triggered again. And Yep. It's only going to trigger more tra- tra- uh, trauma for them. So option one would be to halt this uh, altogether, stop it, right? And then remove the male inmates. Option two would be to at least stop future transfers, right? Until there's a safety assessment. That's your uh, improper notice comment, right? right? Mm -hmm. And then what is your third option? Uh, uh, I think you hit it at it with the segregation of male inmates. If you have males identifying as transgender or or as non-males in identity, uh, that they be segregated away from the women. That, uh, is that a possibility yeah, as well? And, the, and, and I think that that's a reasonable solution for everybody. There's enough of them. If you've got almost 300 applications, you can pop them all in their own unit. Yeah. But they can't because it's discrimination wow. under the law. So the current under laws and rules bar. Yeah. 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 And so it's, it's insane. Um, most of these men, uh, like, so we already heard about one, um, who was transferred to CIW and he's in there for um, sexually assaulting two young boys, six year old and eight year old. Mm. And he has transferred and he's already been sexually active 
with multiple women, he has stopped taking his estrogen and cut his hair. Wow. So they said he is male presenting. He's been there for like three weeks. Wow. Um, there, it just over and over again. There's this is a storm that's brewing, and and the, the common sense is just missing from it. You can see, you know, uh, when you lay out the facts the way they are, there's a common sense problem here that people have to be able to look. Turning away blind, blind eyed is not an option. Yeah, I mean, so just to get back to your question too, you asked about solutions, and I think the bottom line is there's no need to have mixed sex prison facilities, and however you need to do that is doing that. But I do think that if if the authorities are not willing to completely undo what they've done here, then at a minimum, they need to not have, I don't know if I can say this on your show, penises. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. they, they can't. You just can't have that. There's consensual and non-consensual sex. And right. if these men have been sexually victimized, they are highly, like, they have high rates of HIV. Yeah. I mean, something like 50% of um, gay and trans identified men in prison have HIV. It's an wow. astounding number. Yeah, it's a big number. And you can't Reminder that that crisis is far from over. Yeah. yeah. They're giving out condoms now at the women's prison. Wow. And it's, so I think that um, these women deserve, they're, they're incarcerated, but they still deserve to have their boundaries and to say no. Wow. And right now they're not allowed to refuse a male roommate that get written up and taken to solitary. So that's a really and, important thing here, right? They're not just yeah. in the same prison. You could have a biological male and a biological female housed in a female prison in a cell together, correct? We absolutely do. And at CIW, they have communal showers too. Wow. Yep. And they, when they're naked, they don't look like trans anything. That's right. Like, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's, let's be honest about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, this is a, an amazing thing. If people want to get involved and help what you're doing, how do they go about doing that? How do they reach you? How do they reach the Women's Liberation Front? Yeah. So if you go to stop, um, let me look at what it is. It's, I don't want to give you the wrong thing. Yes. Stop SB 132. Yeah. So stop SB132.com. It takes you to our page on uh, women's prisons. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff there. We've got a petition that we're collecting signatures on that we're going to be delivering in person to the governor. Wow. And we've got a number of things. If you put in your address, it can send things directly to the secretary of the department of corrections or to the governor. Um, And then there's also, we have a fund just for this as well, the legal action fund. So, and then if you just keep going, there's lots of resources. We posted letters from some of the women, clips and just information because, you know, it's not going to be resolved like this and we're prepared to take it as far as we need to. Yeah. Now it seems as though um, a court case is almost inevitable, particularly because of the risk Absolutely. and the fact that there already is proof of risk, right? You already have incidents very early in this. SB 132, folks, in case you're not familiar, that's Senate Bill 132 in California. That's the law that put this whole movement into effect where uh, female inmates are now feeling at risk because biological males are, males are being brought to their prison. Um, so that's the bill. And uh, now you have a way to stay on track with what uh, Lauren and her team is doing. And Lauren, we're going to follow this. Um, I think it's an important story. And there's a safety issue here that no matter what side of the aisle you're on with a transgender policy, there's a there's a clear physical safety issue here that hasn't Absolutely. been addressed by the folks in California, and it seems like a really great idea to to get it addressed. So thank you for what you're doing. And I really appreciate you being one of the few um, journalists to 
be interested in reporting on it. Yeah, listen, <laughs> it's, this it's matters. Big difference. It matters. We we don't. The last thing we want to do is take a vulnerable population and exploit its vulnerabilities more. And that's really what's at at risk here. And and not at risk now. There's, you know, some early uh, cases that show that it's already happened. And so, we we and we we'll want, continue to be making those public as as it's safe to do so. Right. Yeah. We have to hold a lot of stuff back. Of course. Because, yeah. yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, uh, Lauren, thank you for all you're doing. Keep us abreast on this. We'll try to keep, uh, touch base with you maybe in a, a few months and, and see how the uh, campaign is going, how California state That's officials right. are reacting and um, uh, and let us know if there's any any news that we can follow. We want to we want to be on top of it here at Just the News. Oh, we will definitely keep you. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, I really appreciate it. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day in just a few seconds. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right, folks, what a show. Wow, two big issues. I'm still uh, just uh, in, in numbness uh, about the conversations we just had about California. And, of course, really grateful to Secretary Bernhardt for his time, his insights, the work he's doing at the America First uh, Policy Institute, all important things, extending the Trump doctrine legacy into another generation. Uh, uh, very important interviews all around. I've, I'm just floored at the things we heard, though, in California. We live in an era where it seems like common sense escapes us. And I think when you listen to Lauren Adams, who, by the way, is a, a, a very open progressive liberal, right? Uh, I think she called herself an extreme feminist or something like that. Uh, but she is trying to protect imprisoned women from potential sexual assault and other violent uh, crimes by men who are now being moved over, biological males who are now being over, moved over just by claiming transgender or neutral identity. Uh, this is a perfect storm brewing in the California correction system. Not many people know about it. The normal Me Too, the normal ACLU types have been silent. They have not done their job in protecting the women in those prisons. And as a result, uh, there is a potential travesty on the way. Lauren Adams really opened our eyes to it. Two great guests on a very special day of lots of news. Check out justthenews.com for all the latest, particularly on President Trump's big announcement today, fighting back against censorship, cancel culture, big tech, big brother uh, moments. And uh, before we go, speaking of good ideas, good people, um, I know how many times a simple act of kindness has made my life better, my son's life better, who's autistic, my wife, my father, all the members of my family, my friends. You can give that gift as well. You can pass on a simple act of kindness while also doing something kind of fun. How do we do that? Well, Annie's Kit Club has the Caring Crochet Kit Club. This is really cool. Annie's Kit Club is a new sponsor here. They're supporting our show. They have great products. If you like crafting, woodwork, you name it, they've got something for you, your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your friends, your crochet club, whatever it is. But here's one of the cool things about what they're doing. 
the things you make, you can donate to people who are in need. And uh, if you join the club, every four weeks, you're going to get a new kit, all the materials uh, to crochet something new. And then you can partner with a respected charity, a respected organization, and make a true difference in the life of others by giving what you just crocheted, what you just knitted, what you just made to somebody in a moment of need. What a great opportunity. What a great company. What a great cause. And because you are... Uh, just the news fans, because you are John Solomon Reports fans. Annie's has a special offer for us. Uh, you go read the reviews on their site. They have 60,000 five-star reviews. People love what Annie's is doing. I love what they're doing. Uh, I just made a little candy dispenser with my son over the weekend. How cool was that? Listen, the subscriptions are month to month. It's a simple thing. You get involved. You get a new project every month. You get to look forward to it. And you get to, if you choose, to designate to make what uh, your gift available to someone in a time of need. And right now, because you're a Justin News fan, because you are a John Solomon Reports fan, you're going to get a special offer. Your first kit will be 75 percent off that's three quarters off the price that's a huge savings all you got to do go to anniekitsclub.com slash just news let me give you that again anniekitsclubs.com slash just news go there you're going to get 75 percent off you're going to join an incredible community of crafters and you're going to be able to pass along if you choose a simple act of kindness create something into your own hands give it to someone in need through the uh, Annie's Crochet Club. What a really great group. The, uh, Annie's Caring Crochet Kit Club. What a great name. What a great concept. What a great company. Check them out today. Remember, when you join and you become a, a member, you're supporting our journalism. You're supporting the important work of Just the News and this podcast where we had just two great guests today. All right. That wraps it up for the day. We're going to be back tomorrow with more news. Buckle your seatbelt. There might be a new Hunter Biden revelation in the offing. Uh, also, some other great enterprise that we're working on right now. Hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. God bless you. And God bless this amazing country, the United States of America, as he always has. Good night.